0: Uh, hello, uh, is this Mr. Eastwood? Yeah. Oh, uh, hi, Clint, um, uh, Mr. Eastwood. Um, my name's Tim. Uh, I'm from the Dirty Harry Minute podcast. Uh, we've been reviewing every minute of your classic 1971 cock movie. What? Oh, uh, we're, we're big fans of yours, uh, Mr. Eastwood. Um, we've been watching you for years, from the lows of the gauntlet to the highs of the rookie. Um, before I go any further, I have to ask, what were you thinking when you made those two orangutan movies? I
1: don't know. Uh, I, I, I don't know. I wouldn't know. Uh, I never think of either one of them. Uh, when I do a movie, I just do it for what the values I think, and I hope, naturally, you, you hope someone wants to see it. No, I think, makes a movie for uh, empty houses.
0: The critics ripped it to shreds, though, especially when you decided to cash in with the second you one. You know, uh,
1: critics are just like anybody else. They have their opinion, and you, ho- and, uh, you hope... It's, it's very flat into your ego if they happen to say, well, fine, I really think this guy did a marvelous job. You see it in print, and it uh, you know pumps you up for a second. But
2: um, the main thing is... I'd rather have a
1: good success than a large percent of a flop.
0: Okay, so uh, going back to the reason for my call, um, the actual Dirty Harry Minute podcast is over. Um, we've already burned through all hundred minutes of the film already. Well, that's too bad. Oh, uh, don't worry. Our host, John, is flogging a dead horse, and he'd still like you to uh, guest star on a bonus episode if he, if he could get you. Um, he's dragging this podcast out beyond a joke, you see, and he's still making content no one's asking for. How many others? I've lost count. Um, There was something to do with Batman, another fake report from the uh, San Francisco premiere, and uh, now he's shoving fan fiction down our throats. Jesus. Man's got to know his limitations. Exactly. But I'm just a messenger, Mr. Eastwood. Would you be interested in phoning it in, so to speak? When? Well, any time that suits you... I mean, there is a time difference from Melbourne to Carmel, but I figure with COVID shutting Hollywood down, you've probably got a lot of time on your hands. How do you know that? Just a guess, Mr. Eastwood, um, El Paso Productions doesn't seem to be that in demand in a world full of Star Wars, Marvel and Disney franchises.
3: I don't need any
0: money. Oh, I wasn't suggesting you did. Your son, Scott, might need some money, though. Um, He's made a few turkeys. I'm sure you can relate. Do you think we could potentially turn this into a more long-form conversation on the podcast? Don't get your hopes up. But could you just give us some insight? Some nuggets of information, like whether Harry ate hot dogs for lunch and dinner? Well, the difference does it make? Well, it would be your opinion... We can only speculate as fans, but you're Dirty Fucking Harry, so you should know.
3: Well, opinions are like assholes, and everybody has work.
0: That's pretty rude of you, Mr. Eastwood, but I'll play along.
3: Will you knock off the crap?
4: I just wanted to have a talk, that's all.
0: Well, that's what I thought I was asking you to do.
4: I'm afraid you've misjudged
0: me. Come on, Mr. Eastwood. We just need one line from you to legitimise the existence of this entire podcast. That's not gonna happen. Well, that's a pretty pathetic attitude to some of your biggest fans. I don't think I can help. Okay, so I can tell John you've agreed to rendezvous on Zoom.
5: You have a rendezvous with my ass,
3: motherfucker.
0: Uh, hello, Mr. Eastwood. Hello. Uh, um, well, that concludes our interview with Clint Eastwood. On to the fan fiction.
2: Big Gun, written by Dave Allen, narrated by Martin Anderson, I gave you par. It's not for the first time that Big Bad Barry had thought this to himself. He was a forty four magnum, the most powerful gun in the world, and the person he gave Par to was Inspector Harold Francis Callahan. Big Bad Barry had seen some cold nights and bloody days. He was a male, as all forty-four magnums are. His abdomen was the cylinder, his appendage the barrel. Firing the bullet was ejaculate. He loved the fact that when Harry fired him, BBB felt like Harry was putting him in this position. The irony was exquisite. The city of brotherly love, indeed. Harry had no idea that he was almost a kind of queer when you think about it. Of course, a gun can't ejaculate. Anyone with an IQ higher than their shoe size knows this but BBB took his yucks where he could get them. As much as he loved Harry, in a strictly platonic way, he was always quick to assure himself. How BBB laughed to himself when Harry told Alice to get away from him in the Mount Davidson Park. If only you knew, brother, if only you knew. It was also ironic BBB spewed forth death, not life, which was almost a contradiction in terms, but that was the lesser irony. He had often mused to himself that he was like Harry in this respect. Harry had no children himself. The most he could do is protect or avenge other people's children. His existence would give Harry power, but he could not give him life. BBB only hoped to himself that he saved more life than he took. He knew deep into his firing position that this was a crude utilitarianism that reduced the complexities of morality to an accounting ledger that prized the quantity of human life. But then he was a gun, not a Socrates. I gave you power, I made you buck wild. How do you like me now? I go bang. Buck wild. Okay, that was an exaggeration. Regardless, BBB was there for Harry. He was totally dependable. BBB gave Harry his greatest hits. He was there when Harry foiled a bank robbery during his lunch break. He was there for him when Harry took down the naked butcher's knife wielding Rapist on Steiner Street. Most importantly he was there when Harry took down Scorpio the first time and more importantly when Harry finished the job for good. BBB felt they were a duo and he felt that Harry did too, on some level at least. He had an intimacy with Harry that Harry had with no one else now that Harry's wife was gone. Although BBB enjoyed the newfound intimacy, he did not want it at that price. He was there to serve Harry, not the other way around. Of course, it was a two way street. BBB could depend on Harry as well. By no means did BBB take this for granted. He was lucky. A man could have many relationships at once. Even a loner like Harry did. But a gun generally has just one relationship his or her owner. He placed him gently, tenderly, even when he put him down or stored him away. He cleaned about him once a week, usually on Sunday. As far as these things go, Barry and Harry had a healthy and harmonious relationship, even if Harry had no idea. One might make a claim that it was in Harry's rational self-interest to take care of BBB, so that in turn the gun could protect Harry when needed to, but then Harry didn't seem to care all that much for himself. BBB could not understand this, but then what would you expect? He was an inert piece of metal, not a psychoanalyst.
5: One of our squad cars found this in a telephone booth. An anonymous caller tipped us off in this location. We
2: have your daughter pay us one million dollars, or we'll kill her. Details
5: later.
1: Have a nice day. One million dollars. Good lord.
6: And this is Alan Sanders reading the fanfic piece "Diary of Chico Gonzalez." Chico Gonzalez fidgeted in an unfamiliar chair. From the opposite end of the office chirped the metallic sound of typewriter heads being returned. It all seemed more like a newspaper room than a police department, Chico thought idly. Looking up, he noticed Bressler's office was now empty. It felt like an eternity since he'd been last in there mid-morning with the lieutenant. The meeting with Harry hadn't gone particularly well. Bressler had warned him it might turn out that way. After a bit of ribbing about his sociology degree, Harry had shown Chico the patterns. The authorities were sure taking this Scorpio business seriously. At the coffee machine, they'd bumped into a fellow inspector named DiGiorgio. No way in hell was he going to let his own waistline go like that porky specimen Chico promised himself. Even if he ended up staying with the department until retirement. And let's see how much crap he would let Harry give him about his Mexican heritage. Still, he was impressed with the little wooden mock-up of the city's skyline. His cousin was studying architecture at San Jose State. She'd probably have gotten a kick out of the woodwork. Harry had asked him if Chico was his real name. He said, no, it wasn't. His name was Carlos. He debated for a moment, telling him how he had scored the nickname from his boxer trainer, Rusty. But then he thought better of it. As he and Harry walked back to the office, it finally occurred to him what it was about Callahan he hadn't quite been able to put his finger on. It was the inspector's thousand-yard stare. Maybe he was a veteran, Chico pondered. The other man moved like he'd been in the service. Each move of his hips was economical and purposeful, and each movement of his face revealed nothing of the emotion or intention of the man. In his book, being an enigma was fine. The question was, was he a good cop? He wasn't sure. Everything he knew about Callahan so far seemed to amount to a joke. Harry gestured to an empty desk. That'd be yours, I suppose, the taller man offered him before sitting down at a slightly smaller chair directly opposite. Chico sat down on the cheap, rough seat that had clearly seen better days. Personnel had seen to it that a small brass plate was installed on the newcomer's desk. He couldn't help but half-smile inside. His partner had already begun to absorb himself in his paperwork without so much as another word. Funny, thought Chico. The inspector didn't look like he could even read. Two hours proceeded to pass. A parade of other cops made their introductions to him. Giorgio, whose desk was also nearby, kept flicking him and Harry humorous glances. Chico wondered if this was what happened most days. Nevertheless, it seemed Harry had been quite productive these last hours, shuffling photos in and out of dusty beige folders and periodically making shorthand on the back of each with a pencil. The inspector shook his head at one in particular. Not a suspect, Chico surmised. He checked his watch. 4 p.m. He sensed the Sandra Benson murder was the consuming project of the entire floor. Chico and his wife had only been in town a couple of days, but everybody seemed to know about it. There had been a few oblique references in the city's newspapers, but nothing officially on the nightly news. Pretty hard to hide a murder on a rooftop pool, though. Harry's phone rang suddenly finally bringing some action to their part of the office. Really? The inspector quizzed into the receiver before slamming it down. Come with me, Gonzalez, he puffed. The two rode the elevator down to the carpool in silence.
7: Can we talk about the ginormous gun that Dwight shoots off to start the race? Not a starter's pistol. An actual gun with actual bullets in it. Obviously, we shot off blanks, but what? The heck? I know. So according to Dunderpedia, Dwight uses a six-inch Colt Anaconda, and it's the same caliber gun used by Dirty Harry. Well, it's ridiculous. I believe, though, that he would have some gun that Clint Eastwood fired, like a Dirty Harry gun. That tracks. It's perfect for his character. Well, the race is underway. We fired this gun. Creed, Stanley, and Oscar immediately get into a cab. Yeah.
6: Dusk was beginning to set on the city as the squad car edged its way northwards. Harry grunted out the latest to his new partner. The helicopter boys had sighted a man on a North Beach roof training a rifle on targets below. The suspect had then fled the roof and was still at large. Chico wondered what their part in the story was. Surely this was a rank-and-file job. And surely the perpetrator was long gone. Why are we out here? Because Harry doesn't trust his own department was his only conclusion. You must have seen the message in the paper," offered Harry as the car crossed over Market Street. Well, "The pool was on Monday. Uh, why did the mayor's office leave it to Thursday to place the ad?" asked Chico, dutifully trying to follow Harry's reasoning. "God knows. They shouldn't have placed a message anyway, for Christ's sake." Was this the right job for him? Norma seemed to think so. In Farmington, those short few months already seemed like an eternity. The night stretched on, seemingly forever. Harry insisted they patrol around and around North Beach. Give it up, Chico mouthed silently in the dark. Uh, want to meet the wife? Chico asked, about to exit the squad car. Not really. Whispered Harry. The inspector somehow managed to make it monosyllabic. Honest, said Chico. I'll give you that. He closed the door and let Harry drive off into the chilly night. Chico started up the steps to his dilapidated Queen Anne. It had been a solid night. First, Harry had almost run over a pedestrian without thinking twice. Then, a case of mistaken identity had led to Harry's walloping by a group of San Francisco's finest. Chico had found it necessary to pull out his 357 and fire it in the air. Harry had seemed impressed at this, the rookie thought. And the cause of it all? A neighborhood woman named Mary. (laughs) Chico laughed. He wondered if Maria Sanchez had ever made it out of Farmington. And then? The attempted suicide. He actually didn't know what to make of that. Harry had just gone for it. Seized the bull by the horns. Very ballsy, actually. Chico knew he would never have risked going up there to talk the guy down. No way. They'd given up hope to finding the scorpion after that, and Harry had elected to drive him home. Coming through the door, Norma, sitting on the sofa, smelt the gun smoke on her husband. She was scared, but decided to be brave and kept the fact to herself. Chico, confident enough he'd fired it far enough away from his body, was convinced she was none the wiser. How was your first day, sweetie? Norma asked excitedly, but in a breathy way that indicated she was very tired. Fine, said Chico, hanging up his sports jacket. Not much to say. So what's your partner like? <laughs> Chico chuckled. I'm still forming an opinion. Does he have a wife? Norma asked, smiling. Chico shrugged tiredly. Well, I found a place that sells Pastelitos de Boda and by the box load. Free gift wrapping. Here, have one. Chico scarfed one down. Not bad, he admitted. For North California. Beaten ten already. Please stop me. Maybe take some for Harry tomorrow. I'm going to bed. Good night, Chico said, rubbing his pregnant wife on her small, almost
8: indiscernible baby bump. Well, you were only, what, like 28, 29 years old when you were uh, first got your first movie role? Yeah, yeah, I was 28 when, when I got to Dirty Harry. Can you tell me what that process was, like meeting Don Siegel and getting in that role?
5: It was amazing because I was a friend of Don Siegel's son, who was an actor in New York at the time, Christopher Tabori. So I got this appointment to meet with Don Siegel. And at the time, I didn't realize that he was Chris's father. They had been estranged. And so so when I met Don, and and Don was a, a formidable guy, I mean, really an amazing man. The meeting only lasted 15 minutes, you know, and all I can remember from that meeting was, uh, me asking him to come to see me in this play that I was doing at the at the at the Shakespeare Festival, and he's saying, "No, I got to catch a plane back to Los Angeles." Uh, and then I, at the end of the meeting, I thought, "Well, that was that." Uh, and then two weeks later, Clint Eastwood showed showed up at this play because Don obviously was interested in me, and and I think Clint, you know, had uh, a say in the casting, so he sent him to the play, uh, and and then I got the job. But it was only after. <laughs> That Chris Chris told me, oh, it was Don actually told me, because I was asking him, how, can, how come you hired me to play this, this creepy guy? And he said, well, there are two reasons. One was I wanted somebody who looked like a choir boy to play this monster. And then the other thing was I asked my son who was the best actor in New York, and he said, you. And I said, who's your son?
8: <laughs> and he said, Chris Tabori, which blew my mind. What was that experience like playing such a wonderfully evil character?
5: It was it, oh god I you know I thought also nothing was going to be like this. I had such a great time because I was just so, you know, just so filled with the adventure of of doing something I'd never done before. And and plus I was like really in good shape both as an actor and and physically. Um so I I just was just coming up with all kinds of ideas and, and Don, you know, laughed half of them out of the room, but half of them he thought were good ideas. So I felt like I was really collaborating and and, and creating this, you know, this this film, certainly creating this character. It was only after, you know, when it came out and um, I realized that there's this thing called typecasting. That was a rude awakening. And that, and that, for years, you know, all anybody wanted to see me do was just to kill people. That really got old very quickly, and uh, and you know, and sort of like sent me down a different path. Actually, it sent me back to doing theater. But it was a great experience. I mean, it really was revelatory.
1: But but in my <laughs> career, it hurt because in you know, if you're an actor and and you have problems with authority. That created a lot of problems for me. I, I was always, you know, like a, you know, a good-looking guy, young guy, ambitious, but I was not easy to work with, you know, in terms of a director giving me directions, especially if I thought their, their direction was not helpful.
4: Now, did this carry through to Star Trek and everything as well?
1: No. By the time I got to Star Trek, I was cool. <laughs> I mean, Irene, over the years, Irene has, has helped me work this out. But certainly before, you know, I met Irene, and, and after the Dirty Harry experience, I mean, Dirty Harry, the, that experience was great because I loved the director, this guy Don Siegel, who was brilliant and you'd have to be a fool not to realize that you're working with a brilliant director but then most, <laughs> most directors aren't brilliant and so and i and so after dirty harry there were two things that were you know uh, that were really difficult one was the fact that i was typecast as a crazy killer mm. and i really it pissed me off and then the other thing was the jobs i got as Sort of like weak carbon copies of the Scorpio Killer, were as crazy killers, and with weak directors. Or I don't mean that. I don't mean that as 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 a a value judgment. I mean they they were perfectly nice people, but they weren't Don Siegel. Yeah. And of course, I thought, well, what the hell? I mean, Jesus, I you know, I. I." So, yeah.
4: So, well, that actually had to be a little difficult, though, that like your major breakthrough role is with this really fantastically talented director. It's difficult to go into anything and have like the best of the best and then have to go down pegs below that for other and, things. All, it's and hard. And
1: also to be relegated to, you know, a, a meathead murderer and yeah. and and all the roles I got, you know, I mean, at least Dirty Harry, you know, was, was a piece, was a, was a genuine piece of art. I mean, it was crafted. I mean, you, you see that film today on a big screen, and it's 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 epic. I mean, whether or not you you know, I mean, a lot of people were upset by its politics or its its perceived politics. But still, as a piece of 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 cinema, it was f- amazing.
8: You said that uh, you had to battle with typecasting. Did I read right that you were actually chased down the street because people were so mad at you being Scorpio? Oh, they didn't chase me down the street, but I mean, but people would
5: yell out at me and and come up to me and quote Clint's lines about do you feel lucky punk and, and stuff. The worst stuff that happened was that a couple of times I got these strange calls and one was an actual death threat. And and, and then another time, um, at the time I was with the William Morris Agency, and my agent called and said, you know, there's a a journalist who'd like to interview you. And uh, do you want to do it at your home or in the office? And I said, I, I, I'd rather come up, come into the office. Thank God I said that because I, I got in there and uh, and and this guy was a creep. I mean, of the first magnitude. And all he was interested in doing is like, you know, because he was convinced. I mean, like a lot of people are sadly that I was really this psychopathic person who enjoyed killing and torturing people, and, and he wanted to get off on it. And so I, at one point, I just said, excuse me, i got to go to the bathroom. And I went out into uh, my, my agent's office, and I said, I don't know how you're going to do it, but you, you get rid of that motherfucker, and I'm going home. <laughs> so that that. It was hard. It, it really was hard because I was so disappointed. I thought I'd done a great job. And, of course, being young and, and, and stupid and vain, I thought, oh, wow, this is my ticket to stardom and, I'm, you know, and all of that stuff. And then to have that happen. And it turned out that it probably was the best thing that could ever have happened to me, Mike. You know, simply because I woke up, I kind of, you know, shook myself awake from the, you know, the Hollywood dream and, and, and became an actor again. When I met Don for, you know, dirty, to do Dirty Harry, I'd been in a, in a downtown New York theater company. It was a very physical theater company. And, in, and, and our, our work was, you know, involved a lot of, you know, tumbling and, and stuff like that. So, as I say, you know, we were in very good physical shape. And so when I did Dirty Harry, I did all my own stunts except for one. And, uh, and so Don loved that.
6: Chico hadn't slept much the previous night, and now here they were again, riding in almost near silence. It was an overcast San Francisco day, but not too offensive, really. The car rode up and down the undulating hills of Portrero Hill. The rookie saw a lot of black faces. Were there any Mexicans in this town? He hadn't visited the mission yet. Maybe they'd get a chance to check the neighborhood out on the weekend. He had a sneaking suspicion that all leave would be canceled. This Scorpio business was taking up everyone's time. He and his wife had barely had time to scratch their backsides since their arrival. Norma had hardly unpacked one of their moving crates. I mean, he couldn't falter. She was starting to show recently. A wrestler mentioned a Dietrich? asked Chico to break the silence. He was my most recent partner. He'll be out of the hospital soon offered Harry. And Fanducci? Don't want to talk about it. Chico obliged the silence until the dispatch radio crackled on. A boy down in a vacant lot. Harry put on the siren and told Chico to race to the address. It only took them a few minutes. They got out of the car and walked over to a child laying under a rough canvas blanket. The forensics officer pulled away the covering for the two to inspect the carnage. Jesus. The kid's face was turned to red mush. Chico reeled back, nauseously. He couldn't summon the words. This was worse than anything he'd ever seen in the ring. Harry had to take over, just for a few seconds, for the ex-boxer to settle himself. If utter shock at the debasement of this innocent was at the top of his emotions, then his embarrassment at his lack of composure was a close second. At Harry's urging, he went over to the boy's mother. A decent woman, he decided. What comfort could he possibly offer? Mrs. Russell? The woman was frozen and didn't answer. I'm... I'm sorry for your loss.
7: This sledgehammer...
5: Who is he? A menace. He used to fire warning shots at Jay Walker's. Now, after this liquor store incident, I placed him on six month suspension with orders not to leave his apartment. But we'll
1: take him off suspension and put him on this case. But Mr. Mayor,
5: rumor has it that
1: this man... talks. Gun, like it was a person. This isn't open for discussion.
7: This is an order. I want sledgehammer.
6: The rooftop was cold and windy. It was 10 p.m., and Chico's mind was wandering. He wished he'd brought his longshoreman's knit cap. Norma had really pushed him to bring it with him, but thought it might look a little weak in front of Harry. His abuelo was right above the Bay Area. She'd caught the train to San Francisco after the war to pick up his grandfather from the naval docks and had never forgotten the cold. Too far north for Mexicans, she said. He and Harry were waiting Scorpio's appearance on the rooftop opposite. That was the chief's best reasoning. Chico didn't know what to think. He had taken one or two criminology classes, but sociology was about the macro, the big picture, not the individual psychologies of the disturbed. He knew, however, that the criminal mind often obtained pleasure from repeating crimes. The chief could make worse guesses, he supposed. They were dealing with an audacious, arrogant mind. But snipers weren't often extorters as well. This creep's M.O. was all over the place. But orders were orders, and he wasn't in a position to question his superiors. Yet. He wasn't really sure what Harry thought. Chico was still reeling from seeing Charlie Russell's dead body. He kept thinking back to what the mayor had said to him at City Hall. He said being a police officer would restore his faith in his public citizenry that from time to time he would have to rehearse his stiff upper lip. The mayor had seemed a little preoccupied on the day. A slippery individual, thought Chico, and something about the zebra paperwake on his desk didn't sit well with him on the day. Chico simultaneously shivered and stifled a yawn. His job was to furnish the spotlight at the appropriate time. He held it tightly. One day, sooner or later, he'd be holding a baby instead, he reminded himself. Not now. Keep your mind on the job, Gonzales. What had Harry been doing the last few minutes? The rookie turned his head to find the silhouetted figure of that strange specimen. He hadn't heard a peep from his partner at all. The tall man was standing as still as a statue, totally engaged in whatever it was at the opposite end of his brown binoculars. Funny, thought Chico. There was another black pair in the back of Harry's squad car. The guy must be into bird watching or something.
1: Requested, really? By whom? By me? I'm impressed with the way you get results, Hammer. Chief Reisner told me once you obtained information from a suspect by tying him to the back of your car and dragging him through half the city. No, that's a bunk, half the city. No, we never left the parking lot. Chief, I find this man perfectly rational. Well, I've heard enough. I'll just find Krugel and torture him and get him to tell me where the other scum suckers are hiding. I don't care what methods you use, Hammer. Just bring back my daughter. I will, sir. Dead or alive.
9: The Long Death by Dane Hartman. I want tangible results, Inspector, said Avery to Harry. You've got three men in custody, sir, Bristler mentioned, who do us almost no good, Avery retorted briskly. You want to know what we have that's tangible? I have a bill here from the university. want to know how much the damages were? No, Captain, Harry interrupted suddenly. You call up the parents of that sixteen-year-old girl we found in the garbage can with a body that looked like a hamburger. You tell them the cost and ask them if they think their daughter was worth that much. Harry didn't wait for a reply. He turned around, walked out of the captain's office, leaving the door wide open. Good afternoon. This is Sam Walker of KFRC, reporting live from Lockspur Landing, north of San Francisco. Since sunlight this morning, members of the Marin County Sheriff's Office have been diving in the sump pit of Hutchinson Quarry, purportedly for an unknown man believed to be at the bottom. Workers at the quarry have reported to KFRC that a yellow school bus colliding with the quarry gates late yesterday afternoon. Soon after, apparently two men entered the quarry with guns and proceeded to chase after one another. Now, it is not apparent what happened to one of these men. The other man, presumably, is whom the divers are now looking for. Some unnamed police sources have made it known to KFRC that the man in the sump may be of a person of interest in the Anne Mary Deacon case which listeners may remember concerns the brutal murder of a teenage girl earlier this month. We have not been able to speak to the police on site at time of recording, however, I can report that there is much activity, frogmen and the like, who evidently are having some difficulty in locating the body. Oh, here's what appears to be one diver now surfacing with... What appears to be a metallic object shaking his head. It's hard to tell what the object is, like a bad... No, he's diving again, presumably in another attempt. Well, that's it for you. That's it for now, I should say. Back to you, Sam Walker reporting, KFRC.
6: Why are you so prejudiced against computers?
9: That's how I
1: met my wife, in a computer dating service.
8: You're married,
1: Hammer? Was married. Nah, she ran off about three years ago, ran off with some geek member of the Peace Corps, said he was more sensitive than me. Can you believe that? Oh, my God. Well, you know,
7: some women just can't take being
1: married to a cop. I don't know. I guess some women just can't take being married to a cop. She was always accusing me of bringing my work home with me, you know? She just didn't understand, you know? I don't, You don't leave it at the office. I'm a cop. I'm a cop. Yeah, everybody wants results, but, you know, nobody's willing to do it. Nobody's willing to take the action. All the other cops are wusses,
8: except me. Hi, I'm Daniel Thompson, and I have two questions. One, was Scorpio slash Garrick's killing spree actually a mission by the Cardassian government to assassinate the ancestors of important Federation officials? If so, why did he not go to Louisiana, where Ben Sisko's ancestors would be.
7: I don't like this slander that uh, is being put upon Garrick. Uh It's implying that the Cardassian government is using him for spying and assassination, which is, of course, completely absurd. He, he comes from a long line of noble, humble tailors. They just make clothes, they don't do anything evil, or for the Cardassian government, or for the Obsidian Order. In fact, they don't even know what the Obsidian Order is. So, uh, Garrick trying to kill ancestors of the prophets, or Garrick's ancestors, is just absurd. Uh, they would have made clothes for those people, not kill them. I mean, <laughs> he's just a humble tailor, after all. And if... If, 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 a big hypothetical here, if he was going to assassinate, do you think he or his family members would do such a sloppy job of it like the Scorpio killer would? Uh, uh, Scorpio killer was very unprofessional if that was his goal. And and we know that that the Cardassians do not like people who are very unprofessional.
8: My second question comes to me from my uh, lovely fiance Karina. What do you think of Dirty Harry's childhood, and how was he raised? Was he a good student? Um, was, Were his parents strict? And yeah, that's all. Thanks for having me.
7: And what was Dirty Harry's childhood like? How was he raised? Um... I think the best way to describe it is there's that episode of The Simpsons in which we got to see Ned Flanders' parents and they were free love and beatniks who really didn't have any care in the world uh that's that's Harry um instead of going supreme Christian and Ned Flanders type he went he went down the road of being a a cinematic hero instead.
1: I want to give. I want to give myself different information to play from. It's not Andy from Hartford or New York or whatever. You know, it's it's, it's like you know, uh,
4: John from Kansas, whose dad was a truck driver right, or for the twenty years, killer, and, yeah. who
1: came back from Vietnam, really damaged and homicidal, it, it, that sort of thing.
9: KFRC K F R C. Further to the report of Sam Walker this morning, we can confirm that a body of a man has been retrieved from an industrial pool outside Hutchinson Quarry near San Quentin early this evening. We can confirm the man has been identified as one Charles Davis, 23, of no fixed address. Davis was formerly a resident of the Stockton State Asylum, Not much else is known about Charles Davis at this point, though we have received this recording made by a psychiatrist at the institution delivered by an anonymous source. Now, our lawyer's advice is that as this is a state-funded institution, medical privilege does not exist. Further, as the subject of the recording is now deceased and no case held against him, we can play this recording for you
10: what are you most passionate about
1: you know having good shit in the morning that's you know that's, that's important
7: mm-hmm.
9: right
1: i am finally finally learning to live in the moment
9: that's that's very astute of you
1: this mm-hmm. is something i've been you know you know I, dropped acid and smoked a lot of dope and read Baba Ram Das and did, you know, <laughs> Om Shanti and, and and all of that shit for years and years and you know, going to going to one you know, metaphysical actually went to the entire fucking metaphysical supermarket and went up and down the aisles pulling out this and that and this and that and this and that. <laughs> and but finally finally I realized the simple truth is it's the past is past. That's done. That's done. The future, who the hell knows?
9: I think you're improving, Charles.
1: Who the hell knows?
9: Now, Charles, when you leave the institution, what will be important to you?
1: Having good shit in the morning. <laughs> K-F-R-C. I already told you a hundred times. I don't know nothing! that man! I got my right!
4: Listen, Kreef,
5: look, I'm Inspector Sledgehammer and I don't give a damn about the rights of criminals. The only rights I'm interested in defending are the rights of American citizens!
7: Sure the- Shut up! No. Don't confuse me.
4: Thanks for sticking your neck out back there, Harry said as the two exited Bressler's office. Chico really felt Harry thawing to him for the first time. Al's all right, really. Chico nodded. You just seem so sure, Harry, back on the roof. I saw the way Scorpio laughed maniacally, firing the machine gun. He's not going to cave in any time soon. It's a 50-50 draw for sure. Harry said nothing as the two of them continued to walk along the sunny pavement. And neither am I, said Chico proudly. Say what? I'm coming with you. Tonight, to the marina. I thought as much... You're pretty proud for a Mexican. What's that supposed to mean, said Chico defensively. Relax. I like you. What do you tell your wife? I'll think of something, Chico tendered. She'll probably have a date with the TV. You ever hear of Archie Bunker? I must get set one of these days, smirked Harry. The squad car was now almost in sight. You ever have a case like this, inquired Chico. You mean a sniper and a kidnapper all rolled into one? One that's got the mayor and brussel all wrapped around his finger? Yeah. No, I guess not. Well then, asked Chico, prompting the other. Where are we going now? Just to a guy I know, said Harry. Any friend of Harry's, Chico thought with amusement. Must be a little bit of a wacko. Want to get a dog first? Asked Harry, always thinking with his stomach. Chico paused to think. Only if it comes with guacamole or jalapenos jesus breathe out harry chico grinned for the whole world to see
9: mexico kill by dane hartman the following morning before the sun had gathered enough energy to head up in the sky harry was summoned to the da's office the da was a political hack named Rothko. he was well into his 50s but looked fit and in the best of health. While not very good at bringing criminals to justice, he could shoot nine under par on the greens he tramped with his cronies. And since he didn't expect glowing eulogies or front page obits when he arrived at the eternal 18th hole, he did the very least he could. Some hood had been killed by a 44 over the weekend, and Harry figured that Rothko would be the first to point the finger at him. Ever since the Son of Sam massacre, the forty-four Magnum had become the favorite weapon of psychos everywhere. Whenever some nut wanted to blow off a little steam, by blowing away a few innocents, they cried for their daddy to buy them a Magnum.
7: Okay, I got it. Maybe you can call your parents and tell him you fell and hit your head, and have him come home before the party. Then what happens when they come home and see my head is fine? Well, we'd
2: have to hit you over the head and give you a bump.
9: Oh, like in that Dirty Harry movie,
6: where the bad guy yells at this black guy, so we will beat him up, and he blames it on Clint.
0: It was Callahan! No chance. I'm not going to let you guys hit me.
9: Jewel for Cannons by Dane Hartman The world may keep turning, Bresla thought, as he marched past different squad rooms, but some things never change. Like the San Francisco Police Homicide Office. It was still on the 7th floor of the Justice Building. It was still in Suite 750, and no matter how they changed the desks or how many partitions they moved in, the ambience stayed the same. Too much smoke, too many junk food wrappers and bad booze. The custodians try, God love them, but they only made the offices smell like the inside of a band aid two days after. Bursler came to Harry's office cubicle and stuck his head in. The only one there was Frank De Giorgio, who was reading a 1977 issue of Playboy. Where's Callahan? The lieutenant asked. De Giorgio jerked in his chair the magazine neatly hopping out of his hands. When he saw it was Bressler doing the asking, he swallowed the curse that leapt to his lips and collected himself. "'Down to missing persons, I think,' was what he finally said. Bressler nodded. "'Good article?' he asked before he left. Uh, "'Article?' DiGiorgio replied. "'Oh, yeah, right. good ar- Good article.' The lieutenant should have chewed DiGiorgio out, and he would have, if it had been anyone else, but being Harry Callahan's partner was dangerous enough. That was something else that never changed. Giorgio was the only one out of six partners to last more than one case. That's why they called Callahan-Judy the suicide seat. Only Giorgio seemed to have the sense and the timing to get out of Harry's way. ...when he played superhero. It was Harry himself who always seemed to need the chewing out. That was the only way Bressler knew of controlling him... ...besides giving him plenty of rope and hoping he didn't choke on it. After all Harry's tragedies, Bressler mused, it was amazing Harry couldn't be controlled at all. First, his wife was killed in a meaningless traffic accident... Then there was the Scorpio affair, where Harry threw away his badge. And through it all, Harry just kept getting better and better and more professional. The vigilante cop mess probably had something to do with that, Bresla figured. Callahan really had to examine his M.O. during that case. So now, if anything, Harry was even more devastating in the field... It was just a matter of utilizing him properly. And after all their years together, Bresler considered himself the Callahan expert. Unfortunately, the various captains, commissioners, and mayors that came and went couldn't claim the same.
7: Ooh,
1: it's that new show about the policeman who solves crimes in his spare time.
7: Crank it, Homer.
1: You busted up that crack house pretty bad, McGonagall. Did you really have to break so much furniture? You tell me, Chief. You had a pretty good view from behind your desk. You're
5: off the case, McGonagall! You're off your case, Chief. What does that mean,
4: exactly? It means he gets results, you stupid Chief!
0: Dad, sit down.
6: Oh,
1: I'm sorry.
8: It's funny. I was just talking with a screenwriter, John Huff, and he was saying that his entire career is basically owed to studying the script for *Dirty Harry*. He just, he and his writing partner L. Ford Neal just studied that script, learned where the beats were in that script, because they just felt that that really, you know. And he said, "No, oh, you could probably do that with any script, but we chose *Dirty Harry*. But *Dirty Harry*, yeah, it's a really really tight script and having a director like Don Siegel in the directing chair on that one was a perfect match. And you mentioned the, you know, the regulars from Cassavetes, you know, it's so nice to see the regulars in a Don Siegel film as well. Cause he had kind of his core group that he would work with over and over again. And one of those people, you know, you mentioned Lalo Schifrin earlier, they, that was his guy, like so many, of the sequel films were scored by Schifrin. You know, so many times you'll see these faces popping up in one sequel film or another. And Don Siegel, a lot of people will just point to like Dirty Harry and some of the you know the uh, Invasion of the Body Snatchers, some of these movies. But he had such an amazing career, and I think even kind of like his misfires are always interesting. Not that he had a whole lot of misfires.
3: All right, let's see if I can channel a little bit of Sam Elliott for this one. Giorgio was not a particularly
8: complicated man. Jameson on the rocks, past the ice. Mary returned to thinking about rabbits again. Somehow managing to find and operate the battered rotary phone... She called Sandra and tried to explain to her what was going on, even though she really had no idea what was going on. All she could muster were a few nouns and some slight giggling in between. Somehow, mutual accord was made, and Sandra agreed to come over an hour earlier than originally planned.
2: Norma gained an interest in psychoanalysis that started when she was a student at San Jose State. By then, she'd met Chico and had fallen in love. She always found the overly bosomy, man-eating Marilyn Monroe over the top and trashy. Perhaps she wasn't quite as far from her rural conservative roots as she thought. She realized in this instance she was like Marilyn Monroe. Norma had read about Marilyn Monroe's analyst, Dr. Ralph Greenson, falling in love with Marilyn in the National Enquirer, as opposed to the other way around, the analysed falling in love with the analyst. It all seemed a bit East Coast to her. You're
9: the real heroes. I mean, I have tremendous respect for cops ever since I saw Dirty Harry.
4: You like Dirty Harry, huh?
9: Oh, I love it. I watch it every chance I get.
4: You know, the are showing it tonight at a revival theater down in the village. Really? Maybe I'll go see it. Actually, I was going to catch it, too. You want to meet there? Sure, why not? Um, Bob... Shut up. I'm working here. Eight o'clock. Greenwich Theater on West Broadway.
9: Sounds great. Uh,
4: Bob... Shut
9: up. <laughs> so I'll see you tonight, right? Great. Amazing! (laughs) You were right, did you see that? I just talked myself out of a ticket. (laughs) And I got a date with the cop, don't I?
3: Several years back, one of the 13th Street churros was throwing his weight around and threatened Rusty for trespassing when he was going to visit his friend Maria for some late-night good times. Rusty put him in the hospital with his bare fists, and still managed to give Maria a good evening. Three days later when the 13th Street churros rolled up to Rusty's house in their lowered 64 Chevy, he chased them off in his underwear with a bottle of Jameson's in one hand and a tie iron in the other. You can take the boy out of the barrio, but you can't take the barrio out of the boy, as the cliche goes.
8: Part of being a human pit bull was that Callahan didn't quite feel things the way others did.
3: Various Acts of American Violence by Dave Allen It wasn't really wrong, not really. America owed him. She owed him more than she could ever repay him in 40 lifetimes. <laughs> A mule in 40 acres, my ass. Robbing the bank wouldn't even begin to cover the debt. Heck, it wouldn't even cover the interest. He had fought in Vietnam, and was even hopeful that things would change. I mean, not radically overnight, perhaps, but eventually change for the better. The Black Panther straightened it all out for him. If black soldiers were not given respect after World War II, why would they get it after Vietnam? The more things changed... (sighs) America had taken from him. He was going to take from America. She would never give it to him voluntarily. If she was going to do so, she would have done so by now. Despite what he told himself, he did actually feel sorry for the customers and low-level staff in the bank... In spite of all his hatred for the country and what it stood for, he couldn't really hold them responsible. He had grown up poor in rural Alabama where he could go days, sometimes weeks even, without seeing a white face. And when he did see a white face, there was violence as often as not. But over in Vietnam, he met poor whites who weren't much better off than he was. I mean, he was no genius, but he could tell they really had nothing over him. They were no more in control of the levers of power that controlled the system than he was. If they were, they wouldn't have been sent halfway around the world to die. He and two other former Vietnam veterans that he had met through the Black Panther Centers, Ed Mustafa and Horace Wilson, had all agreed to rob a bank. Robbing a bank in the SCO would be about as easy as anywhere in the country, A city famous for its queers and hippies would be unlikely to have much heavy manpower. The rich yuppies would give over easy, and the threat of violence would probably be enough. At least he hoped it would be enough. He was familiar with violence long before he went to Vietnam, and he had seen enough of it to last ten lifetimes. The violence he had seen over there had calloused his soul. He was
10: capable of things he would never have imagined. I, David Dedrick, got to read some some short stories that were written for the Dirty Harry Minute. Hmm. They did a kind of fun fan fiction episode where they got various uh, guests of the show who wanted to do so. They didn't force us or pay us, but, you know, fe- they fell in between the two. And sure. And uh, that what we did was we wrote stories that were kind of interstitial stories, so they're not they're not related to the main action of the movie. They kind of fill in background details of, of the various characters and things that happen in the film. So, so is this like
8: fan fiction basically?
10: It's like fan fiction. Exactly. There's little short stories. Okay. Some of them detail, say uh, the guy who sells hot dogs to dirty Harry. All I, right. I wrote about the black guy who beats up Zodiac. Okay. Uh, so he looks like, to so make people think that he was beaten up by dirty Harry. That's right. Other people wrote about the bus driver. So, you know, it's, so everyone kind of chose different elements of of the story, and they kind of they kind of imagined scenarios around these characters, and and that sort of that kind of fill in elements of the film that aren't that aren't discussed. And it was a lot of fun. It was I really enjoyed writing mine. I thought it was really fun. And so then um, the host of the show, uh, he asked he asked if I wouldn't mind reading them because I guess he I guess he wanted someone who had like some semblance of an American accent, which I don't because I, I live in Canada, but. You know, so all, you know it's dirty, hairy a, eh? I kept saying, and then, uh, but so I got to read all these stories. I think there' was thirteen of them, and so I read them all, and I learned a few things reading these stories. One is that it's hard to read a story and not make a mistake. <laughs> it's really hard to like read in a microphone and make mistakes. The second thing I learned is that I am unable to speak that's mm. that's the second thing I, I learned i I discovered that i I for the longest time thought that I had pretty good diction. And was a good reader. And I've, I've always taken pride in my, and this is not something you should do in church, but I've always taken pride in my reading the lectionary on, on Sundays. I always think I do a good job and that I'm very clearly, clear spoken, but also make it interesting, you know? Okay. And and I learned that all of that is wrong, that I am actually a terrible reader with a mouthful of marbles. And so that that was also like kind of shocking. And then the other thing I learned is that uh, I don't want to do anything for Audible. Okay. Because it's a lot of work doing that stuff. It's hard. It's hard reading.
4: Mm-hmm. It
10: really is. Like I, I kind of was filled with admiration for people who do it for a living and do it well. Although I imagine that there's an editor cause I had to go back through it all and like cut out all my false starts and times when I like got partway through the sentence and realized I'd lost the plot or maybe I didn't say it. I, my intonation was off in some way. You know, I was I was, uh, accenting the wrong part of the sentence, you know, perhaps. And, and so then I would like, you know, and I would just sort of like, stop and then reread it and then I had to go through and edit all that stuff and, and make it make it work so it was uh it was a labor of love and anyway so if you go to Dirty Harry Minute uh, it's available on their website I'm going to put a I'll post a link on, on the website so people can click on it there if they want and they can hear good old Dave and my lovely mellifluous marble filled voice reading uh, these stories for Dirty Harry Minute very nice I recommend it. the stories are a lot of fun uh, mine was best my story was best but uh, you know that's fine <laughs> You know, it's, just- you know it's,
3: it's an honor just to be nominated.
10: It's an honor just to nominate myself. Is the yeah? Um, the the of movie makers are being lowered. Um, we get
9: movies that are, that are really popular, but maybe aren't that good, like um, Police Academy or Porkies. Um, yeah. I I like Police <laughs> Academy. No, I
5: mean you know everything has its place. I mean, uh, one day we wanted to see something really gross and stupid, and Police Academy was perfect. You know, when you're in that kind of mood, you don't want to think. You don't want to even have to follow the jokes too well. You want something really that's just right in your face, and that's what Police Academy was. I don't know if they teach it at film school, but, you know, Thursday afternoon at 2, it was okay.